Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Lots of animal news this week to report to you, which we start with, Peter. Hey, Lori, I say we start with beer. Beer, okay. Beer, I'm okay. ready. When you go to Portland, uh, you should visit Fido's. It's the first craft beer tap room that also has adoptable rescue dogs. I you like that? I saw that. I love yeah, that. Yeah. So in addition to the uh, 40 taps of craft beer and cider and wine, there's a lot of human food. And you can also visit the rescue dogs that live in a special Fido room and uh, hang out. Isn't that cool? That's so cool. Are the rescue dogs able to intermingle with the customers? Well, the customers can go see and play with the dogs in a different area. They have to sign a liability release and then they are charged. $4 for 30 minutes to enter, and that covers the cost and supports the charities that are involved. And the background is uh, pretty interesting. The owner has a nice video where he explains that he was severely depressed and the love of his companion dog really helped him get through it and it inspired him. Also, he liked the idea of a cat cafe that he saw because those are a known thing. So uh, what's more Portland than craft beer, food, dogs, and charities? So just, there you go. I just love it. There needs to be a law, like a federal law. You're going <laughs> to open up a, a pub or you're going to open up a beer tap room. You have to have at least Five homeless animals residing in your place of business up for adoption. That's do you great. think they have a permit, a special permit to do this? I mean, there must be some ins health inspectors regulation having animals where they serve food, except for service dogs, of course. You know, in my reading, I didn't see anything about that, but evidently they've got that problem figured out. In fact, you can bring your own dog to Fido's, not to play with the rescue dogs, but they've got a patio and you can uh, hang out there. The health code does not permit pets other than registered service animals to enter the actual eating, drinking establishment. Mm. So there you go. So I like this place. It looks really interesting. And if we ever make it to Portland, we, I think we'll go there. Do you we like better that? believe we will. Yeah. So go visit Fido's, my next career proprietor of Fido's Part 2. Okay, Lori, here's another item having to do with an orangutan named Sandra. Okay, have you heard about Sandra? No. She is from Argentina, and in a landmark 2015 court decision there in Argentina, she was granted the status of personhood. Personhood. So even though she is not human, she has got an extra higher level of rights that make her a person. So you just can't buy and sell her and you can't confine her and you've got to give her the best life possible. Isn't that interesting? And wow. we've been following this idea of non-human personhood back here in the States vis-a-vis -vis the Non-Human Rights Project and Stephen Wise is the leader of that organization. And uh, this shows you that other countries are ahead of the United States in dealing with this concept yeah. of uh, other non-human animals having this higher level of status, particularly when they are highly intelligent and self-aware, such as your cetaceans and your great apes, right? Right. So the idea of granting personhood to a mollusk, I mean, that doesn't make sense. But you've got a smart, sentient animal they should have a greater rights than just being bought and sold. So Sandra ends up in the United States, and where is she going? She is going to retire in Florida. <laughs> well, I don't know if she's going to retire, but she is going to her new home, the Center for Great Apes, which is in Florida. And this is a, a sanctuary for uh, lots of great apes, a really wonderful place. 
well, the other apes at the sanctuary are going to be quite envious that Sandra has a personhood status now. You know, that's a really good point. So now that she's moved to the United States where this concept is not really accepted yet, does her personhood status come along with her or did she have to let that go? Mm. Well, either way, I know they will take very good care of her for her entire life at the sanctuary. You bet. What else you got there, Peter? This is a real good one also, uh, having to do with 10 grizzly bears. They were in the Mendoza Zoologic Park in Argentina, and uh, that was a zoo, and the zoo was closed down uh, after a lot of uh, protests, and they were transported, flown to the Wild Animal Sanctuary in Colorado. We've been there. That's a great place. Yes, it is. And uh, that facility is uh, in Keensburg, which is north of Denver, and they have acquired and are building out another huge new property, which is near Springfield, and a 50-acre habitat is where these uh, grizzlies are going to go. Right now, they are getting acclimated to their uh, new home in Keensburg. You know, not many places can take on 10 brand new grizzly bear. So they are really doing something special. And uh, certainly these bears are going to have a much better life in uh, Colorado compared to the little crappy zoo in uh, Argentina. So we look forward to visiting these bears and seeing how they're doing and visiting the wild animal sanctuary again. And Lori, I just want to tell listeners, if you go to Denver for any reason, try to add a little trip to that place to your uh, plan. You're going to really be impressed with what they're doing there. Yeah, Peter, talk about the elevated viewing walkway that they built there. Oh, yeah, this is a really neat thing. Once you uh, spend some time in their visitor center, which is a really a huge building by itself, that uh, empties out into a elevated walkway. You're like... 40 feet or something above the ground and uh, below you are these uh, huge areas for the various animals that they've got there they've got a lot of big cats they've got bears and uh, wolves and one of the amazing things that they figured out there is that as you're walking above the animals they're not bothered by you they are innately not scared or even aware that there are people above there. It's just not a scary thing to them. They're only used to seeing prey and predators at eye level on the ground. So it's very tranquil, and they don't try to interact. They're just doing their usual thing, and you're above, and it's uh, very natural. Right. They pay no mind to you up there, looking at them. So you'll want to do that. The walkway is about a mile long, and uh, it's really worth visiting. Okay, can I throw one in here? Okay. One of my favorite things to rant about. So as you know, one of Donald Trump Jr.'s hobbies is big game hunting. What hobbies do you enjoy? Oh, bowling, basket weaving. Oh, and killing beautiful, innocent, majestic animals for fun. We've talked about him or ranted about him on the show before about his love for killing. And by the way, despite both of the president's sons being avid big game trophy hunters, President Trump has spoken out against the practice. Anyway, a new controversy over Trump Jr.'s hunting trip, which took place this past summer. There was an article published last week. You can check it out. The title of the article is called Donald Trump Jr. went to Mongolia, got special treatment from the government, and killed an endangered sheep. So Donald Trump Jr.'s trip to Mongolia this past summer, he hunted and killed a rare Argali sheep. You would recognize what these beautiful animals look like if you saw a picture of one. The males have large curved horns. Argali sheep are the largest living wild sheep native to the highlands of Central Asia. Argali is a Mongolian word for ram. 
and they're considered national treasure in Mongolia. According to ProPublica, a permit for the killing was retroactively issued after Trump Jr. met with the country's president and after he left the country. Huh. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, it's unusual for permits to be issued retroactively after the hunter leaves the country. But I guess if you're the son of the United States president, it can happen. Or vice president. Right. (laughs) According to the president of the Humane Society of the United States, Kitty Block, it's obvious why the trophy hunting portion of Donald Trump's junior summer trip to Mongolia wasn't shared and why the relevant federal agencies have no comment on it now. The trophy hunting of Argali sheep, an animal listed under the Endangered Species Act and whose numbers are dwindling, is indefensible and the hasty process of after-the-fact permitting is downright deceitful. According to Sarah Admondson, president of the Humane Society Legislative Fund, Donald Trump Jr. shouldn't mix politics with trophy hunting. The Argali sheep he killed in Mongolia is a species protected under the U.S. Endangered Species Act, and there's a reason for it. Its numbers are in steep decline, and Mongolia's murky permitting system for trophy hunting has done nothing but exacerbate the decline. This was bad judgment on his part, to say the very least. It's so pathetic, Lori. You know, it going, is. going, oh, oh, I'm going to get a sheep. I yeah. Know. I know. Yeah. yeah. Can't you just put it on hold also while your dad's president? Can't you just refrain for a couple of years? I know. Yeah. Apparently, he's not posting or sharing any pictures of yeah. him and the sheep. But at the bottom of this article, if you want to take a look at it, there's another guy, I can't remember who it was, posing with one of these huge, beautiful yeah. sheep after he killed him. I don't know what to say. Lori, there's a little good news about a population of humpback whales in the South Atlantic. It turns out that their numbers, thanks to a new method of tracking them and uh, estimating how many there are, are greater than previously thought. And uh, now the estimate is that there are about 25,000 of them in that part of the seas. That's great. At the turn of the last century, that was the number that is estimated to have been uh, living in those waters. And then, uh, you know, they were hunted almost to extinction. Following the passage of the International Whaling Commission moratorium on commercial whalings in the uh, 1980s, the number started to uh, rebound, but uh, evidently they're doing uh, much better than uh, people have thought. This was reported in the Royal Society Open Science Journal. So great news for those humpbacks. I love looking at them, especially when you can they're breaching and you can just see the, nearly their whole body in the air. Isn't that great? I know. Yeah. So beautiful. And Lori, back to New York City. This is reported by the New York Daily News, and there's a great video about this. Also, a professional violinist named Martin Agee. He uh, has been volunteering at the uh, ASPCA's Upper East Side Shelter. And you know what he does? He takes his violin and uh, sits down and plays for the dogs. So sweet. Uh, Yeah. And uh, he wanted to become a volunteer about three years ago. He wanted to do that as a way of dealing with the loss of his own dog who died of cancer. So music has proven to soothe the shelter dogs and calm them down, correct? Well, this is what he said. The reactions I get from the dogs are stunning. I go in and these guys are chaotic and running around and barking. And then I take the violin out and they immediately quiet down and stand by the front of the kennel so they can see me and hear me. 
That's incredible. I've spent a lot of time on stage under bright lights, sort of feeling like the world is watching here. The world that's watching are my best friends that are wagging their tails. Oh, Isn't that sweet? That gave me chills. Yeah. He also says it's calming for them, but it's also beneficial for me. Also commenting was Matt Berkshadker. He's the president and CEO of the ASPCA. He said that socializing anxious animals can take many forms, and Martin's music is a great example of how it reduces stress, gets them used to new sights and sounds, and ultimately makes them more ready for adoption. So we love that, and go check out the video. It's really sweet. Okay, thanks for tuning into the show. Don't go away. we got to take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Animals Today. Okay, it's winter. Winter. It's cold out there. Cold here in Palm Springs. I had to put my uh, sweater on today. I could still wear my shorts, though. That's unusual for you. You usually walk the dogs in your shorts and t-shirt. But speaking of cold, there's a neat video that I saw featuring the football chief's Tyran Matthew. He has got the nickname Honey Badger because he's uh, really aggressive and uh, he's evidently quite good. I haven't been following football that much recently, Lori, because you've got me so busy around the house. (laughs) But uh, Mr. Matthew, he's uh, teaming up with PETA for his second video. And in this one, they are putting him in an actual freezer. 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 And uh, he lasted about 20 minutes. And boy, does he look uncomfortable after a while. Point that they are trying to make is that when you tether a dog or leave a dog outside in the cold, freezing weather, it's really, really rotten. And it's not a nice thing to do. You should bring them indoors. Uh, The water freezes, right? You can't drink your water. Your food freezes. What good is uh, gnawing on frozen food? And it's just a cruel, bad thing to do. And they wanted to illustrate the uh, pain of being in the cold weather. And so Mr. Matthew did it. And it's a pretty good video, I have to say. Makes the point. Yeah. You know, I think about all the idiots out there who leave their dogs tethered outside during these cold months. It really is so sad. Okay, Lori, here is another sports story. The Los Angeles Lakers, they are teaming up with the company Beyond Meat. Uh, That's their new official plant-based meat partner. They're going to collaborate and offer unique opportunities to introduce fans to the taste of their foods. That's really fascinating. LA Lakers and Beyond Meat together, partners. Yeah, it really is. And one of the Lakers' Players, a center named Javal McGee. He's a very good player. I haven't been following basketball too much either, but he is uh, switched to a plant-based diet. He says it's been a literal game changer. So he's really excited to be uh, bringing together Los Angeles Lakers and the company. Do you think he's going to get his teammates to try the burger? I wonder. Yeah, I hope so. Well, it's better than eating a Donald's or a Burger King burger. You know, I have to agree with you on that. And, uh, you know, there's the Impossible Burger. There's the Beyond Burger. Those are the two uh, leaders right now. Compared to each other, they have a similar amount of of protein and, and calories. They also contain fiber, which real meat does not. But really, these burgers, they're, you know, useful for occasional eating. You don't want to live on them. They both have a fair amount of sodium, so just keep that in mind. Right. In terms of health, nothing's going to beat an unprocessed, whole food, plant-based diet, but it's certainly healthier than the meat alternatives, and it's much better for the animals. Yeah. I don't know if you saw this, Peter. This is from The Guardian. There's a video out there showing a polar bear in Russia spray-painted 
with graffiti on him. So some disturbed human thought it would be fun to spray paint in black on the bear's side of the body. The letters T-34, do you know what that is? T-34 is the name of a Second World War era Soviet tank. And some Russians often paint this T-34 on their cars for the Victory Day holiday, marking the end of the Second World War. Now, the scientists are concerned that the bear will have trouble hunting and maintaining camouflage. Scientists are speculating that the bear would have had to been sedated for someone to paint the letters on his body. They're trying to identify where the video was shot. Apparently, the bear was walking near a road at an unknown location in Russia. According to The Guardian, the video of the bear was uploaded to Facebook by a World Wildlife Federation employee based in Russia's Far East. He said he received the footage through a WhatsApp chat group. And the guy who uploaded this video wrote, Why? He won't be able to hunt without being noticed. Oh, there's just so many stupid people out there, Peter. <laughs> well, it's nice to know that they're outside of the United States also, I guess. But no, that's there's really, a lot of stupid people here, too. <laughs> that's really terrible. I know. Oh, goodness, what are they thinking? I know. Peter, I have a great story. This is from the Dodo. Here's yet another story of a pit bull coming to the rescue. Simba, a sweet pit bull, was living in an apartment with his owner. And of course, just because he's a pit bull, many people in the building would go out of their way to avoid him, especially an older woman who lives a floor below. The owner of the dog told Dodo that he, meaning the pit bull, always tried to greet her, the older woman, but she called him mean and looked at him with fear. She never liked him because he was a bad breed. So one day, Simba and the owner were returning from a walk, and as they were on their way up the stairs, they passed by the neighbor's unit. And just at that moment, Simba started to act strangely as he stopped and began to bark and run to the woman's front door. The owner tried to pull the leash, but Simba refused to come. And so when the owner moved to pick up the dog and move him, he heard a voice coming from the inside. And the owner states, I heard a weak voice shout for help. She said, please don't go. The door was unlocked. He opened the door and the woman had collapsed on the floor, broke her hip and was there on the floor for two days. Two days. Two days. Mm. So he called an ambulance and Simba and his owner waited until it arrived. Now this old woman, who's recovering, by the way, she's going to be fine, realized this dog's a hero and probably saved her life. She said, thank you for hearing me. I thought she was talking to me at first, but then she said, no, not you, the nice doggy. And then wouldn't you know it, Peter, other residents in the building also considered Simba to be a hero and now giving Simba treats and gifts. I know Simba is a wonderful dog, the owner said, but I hope this event will make people see bully breeds differently. We as humans must deserve their loyalty and love. Very nice. Okay, Loria, consolidation in the pet health insurance industry, okay? You love this stuff. I I like this. Or maybe it's just a big fish eating a little fish. Ooh, I like that analogy. uh, Maybe it's kind of a merger. I I don't know. But there is a uh, pet insurance company called Pet First, and they administer insurance on more than 40,000 pets, okay? And they are a reputable company, I'm told. Well, MetLife, they are the big human insurance company. They are acquiring... Pet first, they believe the pet insurance market really is much smaller than it could be and and that there's a real opportunity to grow the market significantly. 
There are roughly 85 million families that own pets in the United States, and they spend about $18 billion annually on veterinary care. Yet, as of 2018, less than 2% of pets were insured. And uh, MetLife is going to change that. Mm. And uh, one of the ideas that they have is to try to offer pet insurance as part of an employee benefits package. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So you can just uh, check the box and get your little insurance policy for your dogs. Uh, We should do this, don't you think? Yes, we should. We should have done this a long time ago. We should for each and all of our animals. Yeah. So uh, there you go, MetLife. Big fish eating a little fish. <laughs> okay. Okay, that was fun. You're listening to Animals Today. We have been using the PetSafe Walk Along Outdoor Harness. At least one of our dogs has been using it. Uh, these harnesses, they're built for adventure because they are padded and perfect when you take your dog out walking, hiking, or even running together. One of the things they have is a nice storage pouch, a zippered water-resistant pouch on the top of the harness. You can store your wallet, your car keys, your phone, or your pet waste bags in that. They also have a handle on the top of the harness that works great as a seatbelt tether to keep your pup safe on your road trips in the car. And you can use a standard harness or their no-pull harness configuration. There are added reflective accents to provide visibility at dusk and in the dark. And our dog just uh, wears it very comfortably. That's the PetSafe Walk-Along Outdoor Harness. Hi, this is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. I am very pleased to welcome author Preston Cook because I have been enjoying immensely his new book titled American Eagle, A Visual History of Our National Emblem. Hello, Preston. Hello, Peter. I am really happy to be speaking about this with you and sharing it with our audience. And I want to describe what I have here in front of me. It's a large format, hardcover, full color. It's just a treasure. It's produced and printed to the very highest standard. And uh, it's all about the American bald eagle as it relates to many elements and events in our country. And its genesis is your personal uh, collection. Tell us about your prodigious collecting, please. Well, I started collecting many years ago after seeing a movie called A Thousand Clowns. And there was one line in the movie, you can't have too many eagles. And this is back in 1965, 66. And I, um, I just grabbed that saying, those six words really changed my life. I just started collecting eagle items. But a few months later, I was drafted into the military And I was issued this dress uniform that had these beautiful brass buttons that were gold-plated. And um, they had eagles on them. So I cut those off two years later when I was discharged. And those still remain the first eagles and my favorite eagles in the collection. And I wear them whenever I wear my blue blazer. And they've probably been sewn on half a dozen blue blazers in the last 50 years. And after... After I left the military, I went to college and didn't have a lot of money, but I started collecting postcards and pins and buttons and uh, letters and other items, stamps and other items. And then 
over the years, as I became a little more successful, I started buying more and more items. And, and all of a sudden, I, I guess I got a little carried away, and I've got about 25,000 items in the collection now. And they're really based on about 60 different areas. So the book is, um, is based on eight chapters. So I have a chapter on the military and a chapter on commerce, a, tach- uh, uh, a chapter on the natural eagle. Yeah. and one on entertainment and culture. And these are all ways that uh, the eagle was used in our society, in our history, in our culture um, over the over the past 230-odd years. And what motivated putting this atlas together? Well, a couple of reasons um, for the book. And one is, one is based on the museum. I, I really had an idea of a museum. There is no museum in America that is dedicated to the bald eagle, or the golden eagle for that matter, but of course the bald eagle is a symbol of America. It's on the Great Seal, which was established in 1782. So I I found out that that there were few exhibits over these 230-some-odd years, Uh, no museum dedicated to this wonderful great bird, this uh, only living symbol uh, in America. So I thought I would... um, collect enough, a sufficient amount, to create a museum. But then in order to sell a museum, to tell people about a museum, I had to have a way to show what the collection is. So I decided on a book and spent seven and a half years uh, writing this book. So it was a labor of love. I had a great time doing it. It was very challenging. It was very difficult at times, uh, but very rewarding also on putting this book together. I really wanted to show the extent of the use of the eagle in our society. And, and there's never been such a book written uh, that has been this extensively showing how the eagle is used and how people use it on a daily basis. So not only items that you would see in a museum or an art gallery, but this is based on the daily use of, of the eagle. You know, it could be on a dollar bill, or it could be on a postcard you receive, or it could be on a stamp or a coin. Uh, that's really what I wanted to show, the common use of the eagle, and then how it, how it represents us in all these different, different areas. Now, the museum you referred to, is that the National Eagle Center? Well, I spent some years, actually almost a decade, trying to determine where a museum should be. And I, I really felt that a museum should be... Uh, this really symbolic museum of the eagle should be adjacent to live birds. And I chose the National Eagle Center, which is in Wabasha, Minnesota, right on the Mississippi River. It's a beautiful little town, a historic town. And um, so uh, spending a couple of years negotiating with them on um, on the terms and conditions of my donation uh, we we came to terms several years ago, and so I've donated the entire collection um, and um, and an endowment for the creation of the museum. So the museum is coming along very nicely with Got an it. expansion. Uh, it's about an eighteen million dollar project. Uh, they have committed about ten million to date, uh, so we're well on our way. Uh, we have the real estate where we'll be restoring four historic buildings from the 1880s, 1890s that are adjacent to the existing 15,000-square-foot Eagle Center. So the Eagle Center has the live birds, which I was really looking for, 
and it's one of the few places in America where you can get up close to the birds and really watch them yeah. and, and see them uh, feed and see them bathe and and, um, and almost interact with them. You can get pretty close, so it's it's exciting and it's um, it's a wonderful educational institution on its own. But the added dimension of a symbolic eagle museum, I think, will add greatly to to an existing successful organization. Now, I wanted to highlight an example or two of art from the book, back to the book. For instance, the uh, National Recovery Administration, NRA, you've included some really interesting art related to it. Uh, what was the NRA and how is its eagle depicted? Well, the... The National Recovery Administration was created by President Roosevelt in 1933. Um, it, it encouraged collective bargaining. It encouraged um, fair wages and minimum wage and work hours. Um, it was uh, embraced by almost all businesses, and it was very successful. And uh, this uh, John Coiner came up with this Blue Eagle, what was called the Blue Eagle, and it represents industry, and it represents energy, um, and it was uh, just an iconic figure that was used just, uh, just in, in store windows and in plaques and, and in every way possible, in flags and banners, and it was very successful until the Supreme Court about a year later uh, disbanded the organization and uh, put it out of business. However, there are, there's numerous examples, and I have dozens and dozens of examples of how the Blue Eagle was used uh, during those years. And in its talons, you've got, I think, a gear and then like lightning bolts. Yeah. Yeah. So the gear represents industry. Yeah. And then the lightning belt uh, represents energy and, and uh, work and determination. So, um, so it had those, those symbolic uh, symbols with, uh, with the eagle. And of course, the eagle allegorically representing America. Now, we almost drove the bald eagle into extinction. For our younger listeners who may not be familiar with this story, tell us briefly about the uh, heroine, Rachel Carson, please. Well, DDT really was the, probably the leading chemical that uh, impacted the bald eagle and a lot of other osprey and a lot of other birds and animals, including humans. Um, and it was sprayed just willy-nilly during the 50s. I mean, I remember running after trucks that had these huge fans behind them spraying DDT into the air and then into trees. Uh, so it was very effective in, in curtailing mosquito activity, but it also impacted uh, fish in the waterways because it ended up in the waterways, and then it ended up in the fish, and then the eagles would eat the fish, and then this chemical would process through the eagle, and the eggs were very thin. They became very, very thin and brittle. And uh, they just uh, they were crushed by the eagle sitting on the eggs. So uh, it did tremendous damage um, to the eagle. So DDT was one of the reasons. But there was destruction of uh, forests was the other, and uh, shootings and electrocution by wires, by uh, high wires. Um, there was um, a lot of roadkill, inadvertently yeah. roadkill on eagles that, uh, that were alongside the road. So there was a multitude of reasons, but DDT really was the major reason, this chemical in our system, that, um, that was overused. It was abused. It was overused. And then a fellow named Charles Broly, and he discovered this, and then 
when Silent Spring came out in early in 1962, Rachel Carson brought this up and brought up Charles Broly's studies. And uh, 10 years later, 1972, DDT was banned. So that was a good thing that it was banned. Uh, however, it still is applied in certain areas, but it now is applied uh, in such a way that it doesn't harm the environment. So it's still effective. They've learned a lot about it, and um, and it, it is a helpful uh, deterrent to uh, to many of the diseases that are uh, created by mosquitoes. Yeah, it was a very close call for our eagles, and now they are thriving, aren't they? Well, it, it's a successful program. I mean, it, it's it's a tremendous successful successful program on bringing back uh, the bald eagle. It went from the figures run from 100,000 to 500,000 in uh, 1,500, uh, which is a, t- a rough count in America, uh, down to 417 nesting pair in the yeah. lower 48. So uh, we, we almost lost our, our symbol. Yeah. Uh, it was very close. Um, and now they are in every single state except Hawaii, but they were never uh, in Hawaii in the first place, but in all uh, 49 states, they are now thriving. So that it's a, it's one of the more successful environmental uh, stories that we have. And, of course, it's the symbol of America. And it would have been a shame to, to lose the symbol of America, which, which we came very close to doing. In fact, it, one chapter of the Audubon Society started thinking that we may need a new symbol for America since they felt that um, we may not be able to, um, to have the bald eagles anymore. Well, that's the first time I've heard that. That is really a sign of the desperation. We've been speaking with Preston Cook. The book is American Eagle, a visual history of our national emblem. Thank you very much, Preston. Thank you for your good remarks about the book, Peter, and the transition of the natural eagle into the symbolic eagle, which is what this book shows. Thank you, Peter. More with the show after this break. Lori and I want to tell you about a company we just love, Vistro. Vistro, spelled V like Victor, E-E-S-T-R-O. They deliver fully prepared vegan meals straight to your door anywhere in the lower 48 states. And we just love their variety and the really wonderful flavors. And if you're like us, some nights you just don't feel like cooking. These meals are really good. Their chefs use the best organic ingredients in the market, and they handcraft each meal. They are shipped frozen in insulated boxes with plenty of dry ice. And when your box arrives, you just pop them in the freezer until you're ready to heat up your meal. We love eating delicious, healthy, plant-based foods, and Vistro meals are organic and contain no added preservatives. What a great addition to our home menus. Check them out at vistro.com. You're going to love Vistro like we do, vistro.com. Holidays are here, and we want to remind you of a few things that you can do to keep your dogs and cats safe and happy this season. First, make sure the Christmas tree is secure and cannot fall over, and that tree ornaments, which can be eaten, are out of reach. And make sure the tree's water, which can get overgrown with bacteria, is covered so no one will drink it. Holiday plants like holly, mistletoe, and poinsettias are toxic to pets. And be especially careful with lilies, which can cause kidney failure in cats if ingested. Electrical wires should be covered or out of reach. And use extra care with candles, or avoid using them at all. 
Cats love to play with and eat tinsel, which can lead to intestinal problems and even surgery. So we suggest avoiding tinsel altogether. Don't let your pets eat chocolate, alcohol, table scraps, or anything sweetened with xylitol. And of course, don't give them or let them eat any bones, which can splinter and lodge in the throat or block the intestines. And remember, the holidays can be very stressful for your companion animals. So make sure your dogs and cats have a nice quiet place they can retreat to, away from your guests, so they can rest and sleep in peace. So happy holidays from everyone at Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's www.aianimals.org. I want to introduce a charming and visually stunning book for youths titled Hume Animal, Incredible Ways Animals Are Just Like Us. Its author, Christopher Lloyd, is with us now. Welcome, Christopher, and congratulations. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's lovely to be here. So I just received my copy the other day, and I paged right. through it for like just a moment or two, and I said to Lori, she's the boss around here, I said, right. Lori, I really want to talk to Christopher. I love this book. So, thank you. <laughs> so tell us what it's all about, please. Well, it's called Hume Animal, and Hume Animal is the name of the book because I started off this book wondering in what ways humans are really special or different from other living things. And I did this because the previous book I wrote last year was called Absolutely Everything. And it's, it's, a, it's a book that goes from the beginning of time to the present day, looking at the whole history of everything in a simple, fun, easy-to-read book for anyone aged 8 to 88. And uh, at the end of the book, I, 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 left, I found myself asking this question, whether, how special are we and, and how many things that happen in human culture are also happening in the animal world? And I thought this would make an interesting topic for a new book. So I kind of thought about the key themes that most people would say are special to humans, like we're social creatures, we have to live together, we work in teams and we live in cities and we show off. Um, and then we're creatures with great feelings and deep feelings. You know, go to any Shakespeare play and all the emotions of humanity are played out by the actors there of love and grief and aggression and everything. And finally, intelligence. Most people would say, well, humans, you know, we're more intelligent than any other creature. We can put someone on the moon. Uh, we, we solve puzzles. We, we, we use tools. We invent things. And I thought, let's take those big three big themes and let's now look across the whole spectrum of the animal world and see if they're also happening out there. And I was so amazed to work with a whole range of different uh, animal experts, and they're all listed in, and profiled in the back of the book, actually, about 14 of them, to find all these things that people would naturally think are unique to people have been happening for millions, if not hundreds of millions of years in the animal world. So this is a book packed full of stories of incredible ways animals are just like us. And I called it Humanimal because I thought that maybe we should think about the language we use. And one of my heroes in nonfiction writing is George Orwell, who you may remember wrote Animal Farm. And uh, he wrote also a wonderful essay called Politics in the English Language, where he said, if you want to change people's behavior, start with the language. So I thought maybe let's have a new word. Let's all be the same kind of creatures. Let's be human animals, whether it's a dog or a cat or it's a human or whether it's a bee. And bees, I discovered, actually vote in elections as to where they locate their nest from one year to another. Just like we vote in elections, 
it's happening there in the animal world. Termites live in giant big skyscrapers. You know, their nests compared with the size of their bodies will make Manhattan look, you know, midget. Uh, and actually, they live millions of them inside these incredible nests where they all do different things and they have air conditioning systems. And, you know, they're just like us. We have creatures that, you know, an octopus can turn red with anger, just like a human being can turn their face red with anger. We find uh, creatures that, that, that grieve their dead, whether they're elephants or, or, or whales or, or uh, bonobos and chimpanzees. And through this realization, I thought, let's call this humanimal. Let's let the empathy between ourselves and other species flow. Let's not divide things up with language. Let's unite them together. And I'm hoping many of your readers will sympathize with that and that they'll really enjoy the different vignettes that I've laid out in this book, Humanimal. Incredible ways animals are just like us. So the... Uh topics that you've chosen, some of the concepts, they're quite uh, sophisticated, and yet, indeed, it's an illustrated book, beautifully illustrated, so even youngsters can start with this. Oh, absolutely, and I do not believe in patronizing to children at all. No, obviously. I think that at the age, at the age of seven, eight, nine, ten, they are a peak curiosity, and that's why I vi- today I visited three schools. I'm in Cincinnati, tomorrow I'll do the same, and then I fly to China, and I'll be visiting schools there next week. And all the time, I find myself surrounded by incredible brains that, um, you know, haven't quite hit puberty, haven't been distracted by public exams, that don't have to worry about a job and a mortgage, you know. And the human brain, when it's unleashed in that way, is spectacular. Uh, like animal brains are spectacular, of course. Like you, we're all human animals. So, uh, and and so it's a real pleasure to take some of the leading cutting-edge science that's in this book and make it accessible and visually exciting uh, for younger people. And I think it's really important we give real science to young people um, because for many years, scientists kind of, a lot of them poo-pooed the idea that, you know, animals were very similar to humans. They called it being anthropomorphizing, just to create a nice fancy word that nobody can really pronounce, to say that, you know, dogs have real feelings or, you know, cats get angry or whatever, saying we're projecting our feelings. Actually, the modern research is that that is not so. You know, that actually the nerve endings in a fish are the same nerve endings that we have. And, of course, that makes sense because over 400 million years, we adapted from fish that came out of the sea onto the land. And many of the drugs that are used on humans have the same impact on animals. That's why they test them on animals after all. So waking up to this realization that actually there's a tremendous amount more in common than there is that divides us is at the heart of the concept of this book. Well... Christopher Lloyd, it is just a wonderful accomplishment, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I wish we had more time. Tell us the title of the book, and of course, people can get it anywhere these days, right? Right. So it's called Humanimal, Incredible Ways Animals Are Just Like Us, uh, by Christopher Lloyd, and illustrated by Mark Ruffle, and he's done a wonderful job. It's, of course, only a click away on Amazon or online bookstores, but I would really encourage your listeners to go to their local independent bookshop because it should be there too and if it isn't they can order it and get it the next day and i'm a great fan of trying to support independent booksellers because they're passionate people and they do wonderful jobs and and as much support for them as possible is can only be a good thing christopher lloyd thank you thank you very much peter take care and thank you for tuning in to animals today this is dr Lori kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals 